tremendous prayer. I hope you made it a prayer unto the Lord this evening. I invite you to turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. We continue in our study through the Gospel of Luke. And we invite you to turn there again for our consideration of the Word of God this evening. It was my intention to read through the end of verse 21. I think there's a a theme here upon the Word of God that goes through from verse 1 through verse 21. And you see a contrast of, of those in the opening verses who are not just preaching the Word, but they're living the Word. And then the parable of the sower that's given in verse 4 and following, which is focusing upon the Word and the the various results of the preaching of the Word. And then, again, right down to verse 21, where the Lord speaks of those that are His family or those that hear the Word of God and do it. But we're just going to read the opening three verses tonight and focus on where we will give our consideration. Luke chapter 8, reading from verse 1, let us hear the Word of the Lord. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance." Ending our reading there at verse 3, simple introduction to this portion of God's Word, but it has much for us to learn. I trust the Lord will give us the light we need as we consider His infallible Word. Let's pray again. Let's seek the Lord. Our loving God, we're thankful for the blessing of being able to do something for Thee. Help us to do that. Help us to do something for Thee. We we fall so far short, we still battle with selfishness in our lives. Help Help us to take the exhortation given by the Apostle Paul to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. So much of our lives is filled with that which is vain. God, deliver us from things full of vanity. Help us to serve with hearts that are full. As we consider these verses, I pray that the Spirit of God will take them and use them in ways that far exceed what is planned or desired or prayed for by the preacher. Let thy word run. Let thy kingdom be built. May souls be converted unto Christ. May there be, again, that sense of seeing marvelous things out of thy law. So do this not by the effort of man, but by the work of thy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The verses that we 
are considering tonight, as we come into chapter 8, bring us to close to the close of a certain section of our Lord's ministry. When we come to the end of Luke chapter 9, we'll be brought to a new phase in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, at which point He will be commencing His journey to Jerusalem. And so a huge portion of Luke's gospel will be focused not upon His Galilean ministry, which is where we are right now, but upon His journey, His journey to Jerusalem and the many parables that He told along the way. It would have been very easy for me to have overlooked these opening verses of Luke chapter 8, and that was initially my temptation to just get right to the parable. But as I thought about them a little more, I I couldn't get away from wanting to leave them with you, wanting to, even if I don't fully expound them in the way that is the best way possible, that that you will not have skipped over these verses, that just by simply focusing our attention on the opening three verses, you will have put in your mind the truths that they reveal and the significance of what they reveal. My main motive for doing this isn't so much that we would see something of the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, though I will spend some time dealing with that, considerable period of time, but more that we will see this focus upon the woman, the woman that were involved and crucial to the ongoing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it would be a great disservice to pass over those verses and not consider them as carefully as we ought. The women were crucial, as I've said. Their significance cannot be underestimated. And while most of the Gospels do not focus upon the significance that they had in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is look right here in this portion that pulls back a curtain on an aspect of the Lord's ministry and the help He was receiving from these women that everyone else overlooks, no one else draws attention to. And so Luke is being deliberate in this. He wants us to see that there were people involved that were crucial, that were essential, that were being used in ways that may have seemed not to be the focus. They weren't the twelve, and we'll look at them as well. But without them, the ministry of Christ would not have unfolded in the way that it did. Women were important. And you can see that even if you go right back, right to the end of Luke's gospel, to chapter 23, the end of chapter 23, after our Lord is crucified. I want to read these verses with you. So you see, again, Luke's focus, helping us to see who's involved, essential people that may have not been under the limelight much, but cannot be overlooked. So at the end of Luke 23, from verse 55, we're told... The body of Christ has been taken, and the woman also which came with him from Galilee. So, so this, is, this is actually bringing us back to Luke chapter 8. These women that we're considering tonight, there's been very little said about them, and so Luke is drawing our attention that these women that we're looking at this evening and that were mentioned when the, the, our Lord was conducting His ministry in Galilee, these women followed after and beheld the sepulcher how His body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. And upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came onto the sepulcher bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. 
And you read all down the rest of the, the event of realizing he is not there. He is, he is risen, verse 6. And verse 9, we are told, they returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women that were with them which told these things unto the apostles. They were there the entire time from Luke 8 prior to that, I believe, and right up to the very end, these women were there heavily involved in the ministry of our Lord Jesus. And so, as we look at the opening three verses, it's essentially what, what I've entitled anyway, a bird's eye view of the Savior's ministry. A bird's eye view of the Savior's ministry. Because as we will see, this is not just an event that is recorded. Luke steps back amidst his narrative and giving to us the details of our Lord's ministry. He steps back and gives an insight into the Galilean ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and what was going on and who was involved and the various miracles that were occurring and the emphasis on the preaching of the gospel. So as we consider then a bird's eye view of the Savior's ministry, see first of all the simplicity of his ministry, the simplicity of his ministry. We never tire thinking about the Lord Jesus in terms of who he is and what he means to his people that he is the advocate of his people, the king of glory to his people, the ruler of the world as recognized by his people. But he is also, as a man, the perfect example of faithfulness. When we were praying just a moment ago, Paul's prayer at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, no one exemplified that in such perfection like the Lord Jesus Christ. He was steadfast. He was unmovable. He was always abounding in the work of God. And he was very clear about what it was he was called to do. He gave himself wholeheartedly to minister. And we are called to follow his pattern, to seek to be like him. And when you read verse 1, you can see the emphasis then on what he gave himself to every day. It came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. This is what he was doing. This is what he meant when he said in John 9 verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. This pressing sense of duty that I must pass through every city Every village, I must preach and show the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. This, this weighed upon him. And he knew that his time was short. He recognized that the time was brief. And he therefore, every single day, was conducting this relentless ministry of bringing the word of God to men and women. Note firstly, in the simplicity of his ministry, his method. His method it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village. He went. This is in the imperfect tense, and this is what I mean. The sense is that it wasn't a one-time event of going from A to B, but he was doing this again and again and again. Everywhere was his pulpit. He was always preaching, and he was always moving as a preacher from one place to the other. Luke gives this 
bird's eye perspective, this 30,000 feet view of the ministry of Christ that he went, that is, he kept going throughout every village and city, kept moving from city to city, from village to village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. It's designed to make you feel exhausted just reading it. If you've ever read the life of George Whitfield, and if you haven't, I encourage you to, even those of you who have no aspirations of becoming a preacher. But if you read the life of George Whitfield, and you can get Dalamore's abbreviated version, if you like, if, you, if the two volumes are a little uh, much for you and you think, I'll never get through that. But even read the abbreviated version by Dalamore. You read it and you're, you're exhausted just, 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 just <laughs> trying to see his movement and his travels and his extensive preaching and this, this ongoing motivation to just keep preaching, go everywhere preaching, keep preaching, don't stop preaching, preach everywhere. For such men, you can, you can take the preacher out of the pulpit, but you can't take the preaching out of the preacher. And so it was for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was on a mission, and he taught, and he taught, and he taught. And this, beloved, was his method, to just keep moving in this itinerant fashion, he went, he kept going throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Something is moving him. It is that sense of divine mandate, that compulsion. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. But not only his method, his message. What is his message? He is preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. His message is one of good news. That's what glad tidings means. It means good news. It is the gospel. And if you remember back and look chapter 4, when he quoted Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1, he declared that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. So, he is anointed for this purpose. His message is one of good news, of glad tidings, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is upon him to do this work, to keep giving this message, this message of good news. This is what the Holy Spirit blesses. The Holy Spirit comes upon the person who wants to give good news. And we should keep that in mind. We can talk a lot about bad news, and we can spend hours discussing what's happening in our present day, and we can look at all the negativity. It doesn't matter what it is, political or the, the tragedies that are going on in various places. We can spend all our time, all our energy, all our focus thinking about that, talking about that, considering that. But the Holy Spirit does not come upon that subject. The Holy Spirit is not given to talk about those things. The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus Christ to preach good tidings, good news. There's good news to tell. I'm trying to think of the words. It's just leaving me right now. But there was a, a hymn, wasn't particularly deep in its theology, but a hymn that became very famous in the 1859 revival in Northern Ireland. 
and I had this, this idea, what's the news, what's the news? And I can't remember what way it went, but it was talking about Jesus hath done all things well. He's triumphed over, triumphed over death and hell. That's the news, that's the news. But, but that became the kind of theme of the revival. That was what people were singing more often than anything else. They were, they were constantly singing this hymn because Jesus Christ has done all things well. He's triumphed over death and hell. That's the news. And everyone, everyone was going wherever they could to share the news. And so 100,000 souls professed faith in a 12-month period in a, in a very small land. Why? Why? Because the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon this singular focus to preach the good news. This was the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit was given to him without measure to bring this message to the cities and to the villages round about. Then thirdly, also his manner. His manner. It's very simple what we see here, his method, his message, and his manner. His manner of giving this was, of course, to preach. Now, we've seen this a lot already. Just to remind you, again, back and look chapter 4, where we have the Lord Jesus when he came to Nazareth, and he quotes what we've just mentioned. In verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and so on. He has, he has been given this, this work of preaching. The same in verse 31 of Luke chapter 4, we read he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. Verses 43 and 44 of the same chapter he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. And right through Luke's gospel, you have this, even to the very end, Luke 20, verse 1, came to pass that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and scribes came upon him with the elders. And again, I think the next chapter as well, there's another reference in chapter 21, verse 37 where he says, And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. So I'm just giving you a little insight. His, his work, his, his manner was to preach, to keep preaching. Now, this, this is not a popular exercise today, and you can see it sometimes in how churches approach their methodology of outreach. And I don't know if it goes on often here, but it was a great grief to me, and I perhaps didn't deal with it very well uh, when I was younger, and <laughs> uh, perhaps would upset people rather than just keep my mouth shut. But you, you, would, you would see, in the summertime, in one of the coastal towns of Northern Ireland, there were some very well-meaning young people who professed to be Christian, and they would go there and they would act out scenes from the Word of God. They would be acting. There wouldn't be a word said, just acting, trying to portray some scene, music going on in the background. And I would sit there and go, what are they doing? I mean, what are they doing? Where did they get this? Why, why are they doing this? Uh, you know, what's the, I, I know the motivation. They're trying to reach people, but... but it, the Bible's really plain, basically from Genesis right through Revelation, that people are to preach. You're, you're to preach the Word, share the Gospel. So I can never understand that. And I don't know how often you see that kind of thing here, miming and acting. And 
There are other things that are more common, however, and that, that is the desire to discuss the Word of God. And I'm not against discussing it. It's, I'm not against having you know, groups that come together and they, they come with the purpose that we're going to open up a book or a book of the Bible and we're going to study it together and we're going to have a discussion about the various passages. And you give your thoughts and I give mine and so on and so forth. Usually falls apart and has very little edification in it. But, but I, I'm not completely against discussing and having discussion around the Word of God. But often, often such people who are very driven to motivate that direction, to, to move churches or groups in that direction, actually don't enjoy the one-way declaration of the Word. They don't enjoy it. And the reason then to, to move into these groups is because they don't like, they don't like just having this, this one-way form of communication where the Word of God is declared. And yet that is all through Scripture and exemplified by the Lord Jesus Christ, the primary way God communicates His will to people because God is not in the business of asking for your opinion. And so He sets apart men, not all, and we'll see in just a moment the distinctions in the words and what is meant by them, but He sets apart men, not that they can come to people and say, hey, let's have a discussion about the Word of God, but they're set apart to declare it, to say, thus saith the Lord, here's the mind of God. And there's no discussion involved. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ was engaged in. He was, above everything else, a preacher. One Puritan said, God had only one son, and he made a preacher of him. And his manner was to preach. That's the emphasis here in his moving constantly from one city to the next, from one village to the other, is to preach, 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 keep on preaching. Now the word, the underlying word for preaching gives a sense of being a herald. That's what is coming across when you understand the language. So he has to stand up and herald. It suggests nearly all the time a sense of formality, gravity, and authority, which must be listened to and obeyed. The herald, then, is not one who asks permission to speak. He speaks because he has received orders from God to do so. So that's why he's not interested in discussion. He's not interested in asking your opinion on the matter. Because God has given him a mandate to get up and to declare. Now, of course, it's very common in America and other parts of the world but it's very common for men to then say, I'm one such person. I'm, I'm called to be this herald. And off they go and start their church. Well, I, I don't mean to suggest that simply by you saying, I am called to be a herald, that you are therefore a herald. That leads to the mess that we have so evident today where people just start churches and do their own thing. There are formal ways, there are biblical boundaries that reveal how one can how you can be sure one actually is called, because this is not 
This is not something to take lightly. If someone truly is a herald of the Word of God, if he is to come into a community and not ask questions, if he is to go into a pulpit and not want your opinion on the matter, he must have a sense of a calling from God, and that calling must be validated by the means in which we see in the Word of God. He'll be recognized by men who are more mature than him. He'll be recognized by a body of people who see the gifts of God in him. He'll be called to a body. And in all of this, in all of this, there is indication, there is evidence that this person is being set apart by God, as we've said, not to discuss spiritual things with you, but to give you the mind of God. That's it. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ spent his time doing. He went as a herald. This is an important part of ministry. There will never be revival through discussions. Revival comes when God anoints men who herald the Word, and through the heralding of that Word, the fear of God comes upon hearts. So the Reformers would have an understanding, the Puritans would have an understanding of what it was like to be in the presence of someone who is a true herald. For a herald to get into the pulpit is a foreshadowing of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ will be that event when men will come face to face with the judge of all the earth and they will not be asked their opinion. It will be the giving across, the communicating of his will, his mind, but not not a discussion at all. And Jesus Christ intimates this in John 12 verse 48 when he says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And so he pulls together the last day and what's actually going on in his ministry right now. He is giving his word. And the person who rejects that word doesn't receive the word. They will still stand and be judged on the last day. And what men are to understand then is when they come face to face with a legitimate herald of the word, someone giving the mind of God, they are to hear it as the very words of God. Insofar as it gives clear understanding of the word of God, they are to submit to it. And that man then has this job not of entering into discussion, but of heralding plain and clear the word of God. But as we've noted already, it's not just preaching. The language given also is that he was showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Not just preaching, but showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Showing the good news. And so there's an element of of this to his ministry as well. There's there's a distinction here. There's an adding of terms, but there's, there's a clear distinction in the work. The good news that is being shared is distinct from the heralding. And if you can put it in very simple ways, the heralding is thus saith the Lord, and in many ways is, is, gives the image of an authoritative figure coming to declare what is absolutely true about someone's condition of, or about what they must do. So the herald comes to warn, for example, of impending judgment. The herald warns that you are to respond to to whatever message is being brought and what's happening and so on. But the good news, the good news is then the foundation of what Jesus Christ is all about. In the good news, Jesus Christ is presenting his own work. The herald may call you to do something. 
But the good news is not about what you are doing or what you must do. It is about what Jesus Christ has done. That's what makes it good news. And it's always very important for Christians to have a clear thought in their mind about good news not being what you're doing or meant to do or anything about you. It's about Jesus Christ. If I was to tell you that the good news is that, that you are to repent or the good news is that you can, you can become a Christian, well, there's an element in which that's true, but it's not, it's not, it's not precise. The good news, the gospel, is focusing upon what the Son of God is all about. And so when Jesus Christ was referring to his, his position, I am come, for example, to seek and to save that which is lost, when he would refer to his own work, his own activity, his own purpose, his own offering, offering himself on the cross and the sufferings that he would endure, when he is thinking about that, talking about that, his rising again the third day, that is the good news. And so as Jesus Christ goes from city to city and village to village, there is the heralding part, the warning part. But there's also undergirding that good news. Now when you read the Word of God, and for example in Acts chapter 8 you see this very clearly, you will see that because of the persecution of, of Saul predominantly, that many run from Jerusalem and they spread out. And we are told that they went everywhere, and the translation as we have it is they went everywhere preaching the Word. But, but, the, but the idea there is that they went everywhere gossiping the Word. And the sense is that these people who were not heralds, they were just your average Joe, under persecution, running away from the persecution, these individuals were gossiping the Word. Wherever they went, they, they, they spoke. They told the good news. They talked about what Jesus Christ has done. But immediately following that, you have Philip going down to Samaria. And it says again, and he preached the gospel to them. And in that word, again, you have this clear distinction that he's not gossiping the gospel. He's not communicating in a conversational way, talking in the marketplace in that sense of who are you, what's your name, what do you believe, so on and so forth. Philip goes to Samaria, like the Lord Jesus Christ, he goes there to be a herald, to declare, to denounce, to make plain the mind of God. So you have these two activities being done by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he gives his life to. You would think at times that he has given himself entirely to the miracles. And certainly the Gospels pause and let us get insight into those miracles. But whenever Luke, in these opening verses, gives us this bird's eye view of his ministry, when he, he, he kind of steps back and says, here's what the Lord was engaged in. The vast majority of his work was what? Moving all over the place, all over Galilee, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. It is good news, you know, what Jesus Christ has done. Let's not lose sight of that. It's good news. We live in a world that utterly hates Jesus Christ. I mean, the, the, the kind of animosity that we're seeing today... Your grandparents, regardless of your age, there was a day they would never have imagined they could ever see the utter blasphemy and hatred for Jesus Christ that is on display in some places in the West today. They could not conceive of someone in America putting up signs 
that would suggest if Jesus Christ came back again, they would kill him all over again. Another language that tries to identify Jesus Christ as being like them in their depravity and sin. Holding their banners up. It's not that long ago people would not have been able to conceive that that would happen right here on the streets of America. But it's going on. These people are filled with such hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. They they are not passive. They are not indifferent. They hate Jesus Christ. They hate Him. And when they are on your television sets and they're promoted to positions of power in the media and hold sway in various fields and you, you marvel how come so many of such a small percentage of the demographic get to such high positions of power and they are there with their vitriol and anger and hatred of Jesus Christ. When they start talking with all their speak of love and they parade their filth down the street this is Romans 1 on display God has given them over only he knows those who have gone beyond the pale of ever being recovered And I'll tell you now that the blasphemy that we are seeing today, don't become numb to it, Christian. It's serious business. When you see some of it, you can only wonder how long will God withhold even greater judgment than we are seeing Put it this way. (laughs) When people talk with pride about their desire to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ, when they would love the opportunity to say, His blood be upon our hands, just remember what happened to the last city who did that. So we have seen the simplicity of His ministry. It's not complex. It is not using all the inventions of the day. It's actually just starting to read Dr. Abrams, one of his books, the other day. And in the first part, he's talking about how in the last century, many in conservative evangelicalism and fundamentalism were very quick to, to utilize whatever methods they could. They were very savvy to use technology and radio and so on and so forth. And uh, he was just observing that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong necessarily with using legitimate mediums and ways of getting the word out. But at the same time, we can make a mockery of the simple work that our Lord Jesus was engaged in. We can imagine that if we don't have all this machinery, that we can't exist. We can imagine if there's not a Christian in high power, that the church will be extinguished, she'll not exist. We, we must make sure someone who's sympathetic to the cause of Christianity is in government. Now, that is my desire as much as anyone else in this room. 
But the church of Jesus Christ doesn't depend upon some temporary leader being in a position of influence in government who is sympathetic to the cause of Christ. It doesn't depend on that. There would be no church today if that was the case. Secondly, the successors of his ministry. The successors of his ministry. By successors, I do not mean that they were precisely like Jesus, but they were appointed to follow him. We're told the twelve were with him at the end of verse 1. The twelve were with him. These are the men who had forsaken all and followed him. They walked with him. They sat with him. They listened to him. They gave their lives to his cause. And as he is moving from village to village and city to city, and they're trying to keep up, they're hearing everything. What, what, what an education. <laughs> what an education. Because it wasn't just about the words that were coming out of his mouth. That's a big part of it. But, but they were with him. They were with him. They were face to face with him. They were in close proximity to him. He was rubbing off on them. They were being influenced by him in ways perhaps that were not even perceptible by them themselves. This time left its mark upon these men. Later, after he has ascended, when the religious leaders set Peter and John before them because of their healing of the man at the gate beautiful, we read in Acts 4 verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. There was no way of denying it. There was... They thought they had got rid of Jesus. They, 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 they eradicated this imposter, this person who was upsetting them so much. And he's crucified and he's gone and his influence is gone. This is great. But, but, but he has had such an influence upon these men that what we thought was dead and gone is not dead and gone. Jesus continues to live through the lives of his people. And this is what he was doing. He was bringing these 12 with him. He was having them work with him, watch him, observe him, hear him, be taught of him, influenced by him, so that one day there would be a succession of service. The Lord Jesus had no intention that the work would die out with him, far from it. In fact, he encouraged them that greater work was going to take place because he goes to the Father and he was sending the Holy Spirit and those that would carry on the work would do so not with the disappointment of achieving nothing, but in the power of the Holy Ghost spreading the message throughout the world. And so they were an optimistic bunch. The Lord Jesus is with us. He has so influenced us. We know what to do. We have to preach the word. We need to follow in his footsteps, and what an influence it had. And the work of God depends on succession. Jesus, Jesus is following in the historic pattern, what we find in the Word of God, all through the Word of God, that those who have any concern for the kingdom are always, always thinking about those who will come after them. They're always doing that. You, you can't live in such a fashion where you want the blessing to stop with you and the work to die out when you're gone. I don't know if you can think of any examples. I can think of a couple of examples where people have had tremendous success, great success in business or in sports. And it almost seems that they deliberately 
When they move away, they leave a vacuum that they purposefully hoped that everything will fall apart once they are gone so that it makes them look even more irreplaceable. That it increases their legendary status. If things collapse after I'm gone, that's better for my legacy. Because if they continue on, people might think this is easy. Anyone can do this. And so the man who's filled with a sense of his own ego, his own pride, who only wants to see his own name propagated and his own cause propagated, might actually manipulate things, set things up for the purpose that the person who comes behind has it all fall apart. Well, that's not the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is setting up these men to succeed, to carry on the work. Therefore, I say to you tonight, and especially to you young men, I say to you, I make no apology going after you on occasion that you will consider what the will of God is for your life. Let me ask a simple question. Have you ever prayed, Lord, in making me like Christ, is a part of that that you would actually want me to be a preacher like Christ? Would you want me to handle the Word of God? Would you desire me to, to be a preacher of the Word? Now listen, people are not born thinking that they are the perfect candidates for preaching. If they are, may God spare us their presence. So if you're thinking tonight, I, I don't have to pray that way because I'm definitely not qualified. Well, by saying that, you actually cross the first step of qualification. Because if you believe you're not qualified, that's the first step. You're in the right direction. Now the question is, are you going to be willing to ask, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I want to see young men rise up, go forward, and continue in the same work. Men who will be far better than I ever will be. Young men who have a heart for God. A heart to preach His Word, a heart to be like the Lord Jesus Christ who just want to preach wherever they are. They may be in one place, one city, one village, one location. They're not wandering around in an itinerant fashion like the Lord Jesus, but, but they just want to preach. They, they want to teach the Word. They want to make sure that their generation is not ignorant of the Word. And I would love to see God raise up an army of you. It's not easy work, let me tell you that. It's not easy. The apostles were not in for an easy time. Fishing was easier. Being a tax collector was easier. All the other occupations that these men had, it was easier than what they were about to do. They're about to stand face to face with a world that didn't understand the message that we were preaching, by and large, the Jews did, but as they spread out, they were entering into a world that had never heard or had no comprehension of what it is they were communicating. And as they would begin to speak that they are raising one up to be Lord and giving allegiance to Him rather than Caesar, the danger was they were going to lose their lives. Now, we've had many years of great prosperity and blessing and preservation in this land. I hope 
that it continues and we continue to pray that God would give us such peace that we may live quiet and peaceable lives, able to preach the gospel with freedom. But it may not go forever. And such men who receive the call of God or sense the call of God in this day, in their 20s or early 30s, they may find that before they're done, they're facing something very different to what previous generations have faced in this land. remember some time ago taking note of a something that John MacArthur said when he was asked the question, what is the ultimate key to effective preaching? You see the Lord Jesus Christ here, you see him preaching and going about his ministry and the apostles are called to follow in that footstep and we ask ourselves if I'm called and I'm called to follow, I'm called to be a preacher of the word. And here's what MacArthur said when he was asked that question. He said, Very simply stay in your study until you know that the Lord will gladly accept what you have prepared to preach because it rightly represents His Word. And then what he did was he closed with words that were not his own. Now, I don't know where this came from. I don't know where he got it. But hear me out. And this may be for just a little cluster of young men, the men who are currently in training, or a few others who may think about it. But I want you to get an understanding. <laughs> it may be a little exaggerated in some areas, but I think the heart of it, the core of it, the sense of it, is something we need to recapture. Let me close with an unforgettable plan suggested by an unknown parishioner as to how to accomplish this. That is, effective preaching. Fling him into his office. Tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing list. Log him up with his books and his typewriter and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before texts and broken hearts and the flock of lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our surfeited communities who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all the night through. Let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever, spouting remarks, and stop his tongue forever, tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Rake his emotional poise with worry for God. And make him exchange his, his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Put water in his gas tank. Give him a Bible and tie him to the pulpit. And make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, quiz him, examine him, humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, batting averages, and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it night and day. Sir, we would see Jesus. When at long last he dares essay the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, then dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community weary drives and bless the sort of baked potatoes and green beans and ad infinitum better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up, worn and forlorn, and say, Thus saith the Lord. 
Break him across the board of his ill-gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him with demands for celestial wisdom. And give him no escape until his back's against the wall of the Word. And sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left, God's Word. Let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip, but give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, suffer with it, and come at last to speak it backward and forward until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. When he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man, finally transferred from earth to heaven, then bear him away gently and blow a muted trumpet and lay him down softly. Place a two-edged sword in his coffin and raise the tomb triumphant, for he was a brave soldier of the word. And ere he died, he had become a man of God. Capture something of it, Beloved. You can't read the old sermons and the old literature and not see a distinct difference between their view of God, their lofty understanding of Christ and His person and in His work, and the holy manner in which they brought that word. And instead today we have sermons that begin in a jocular fashion intentionally. It's not really helpful if you don't get them laughing from the beginning. Don't be so sober. Don't be so serious. We have enough weariness and burdens in our day. Don't, don't, don't bring the solemn thoughts of eternity before us. Help rock us to sleep. Pat our pillows so that we're a little more comfortable. Encourage us in our half-hearted endeavors. Make us feel good about the little that we do. The twelve were with him. That's it. One had a devil. Eleven men. Successors to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what made the difference? They were with him. They were with him. That's what makes a difference. To be with Christ in his word, to be with Christ in the place of prayer. And this is why when the apostles came to the problems of the church and they were looking at those various issues, thinking particularly of Acts 6 as we've thought about it recently, We can't, we can't serve tables. But we will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. It's not easy to be so focused in that way. It's not. It's not easy to exemplify the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. Where's your time for going fishing, as we said this morning? Where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the round of golf? Where are the coffee stops and going out to see friends and all the rest of it? I'm not saying it's all wrong. I'm not against hobbies. I'm not against resting the body for its 
It's weak enough as it is. But the church is in dire need of young men and young women who will spend and be spent for Christ. That if the only motivation is this, they're looking around and they're wondering, who's going to carry the banner? Who's going to carry on the work? And there's no one there. And the only motivation is, I am compelled because there appears to be so few others. I can't ignore the, 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 the dearth, the, 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 the desert experience of the church of real men of God. And, and by God's grace, I'm, I am resolved to, to become more acquainted with the Word, more acquainted with God, seek God and get serious about these things. These things are... If the trajectory of the church continues as it is. It will not be good in another 50 years. And that's an understatement. So I say to you young men, think seriously about it. There's no higher calling. There's no greater blessing and to be called to do the same work the Son of God did. A life dedicated to making the mind of God known. And not being ashamed that that's the only thing you're going to give your life to. No shame in that. Thirdly, the supporters of his ministry. We've seen the simplicity of Christ's ministry, the successors of his ministry. We come then to see the supporters of his ministry. We read in verse 2 and following. Certain woman, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him, of their substance. Similar to verse 1, this is not a singular event. This is an ongoing practice. So, if the foxes of holes and the fowls of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head, how, how was the ministry of Christ sustained? How? Don't take script in our purse. How was it sustained? Was it men? I have no doubt that some men did. Men like Lazarus, men of... Uh, no, sorry, pardon me, Zacchaeus I'm thinking of. Men of means. I'm sure they supported the Lord. But we do not read of any man following our Lord and doing what these women did. Not one. They ministered, they're in ministry to Christ, but not just Christ, his apostles, but they're looking at Christ. This is what we do when we serve the Lord's people. We do it as unto the Lord, 
as the apostle tells us, they ministered unto him of their substance. We are told three names, Mary, Joanna, Susanna. We're also told, and many others, many others. The sense is again that it was other women, not many others randomly, men and women. It was, it was these three women and many other women. And they're giving themselves to minister unto the Lord of their substance. What united them, the ones who are mentioned? Well, there were certain women, verse 2, that had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So the focus is on particular women who had been delivered from great infirmity or difficulty. They had these problems, demon possession, physical infirmity. And in gratitude to the Lord, like the woman we considered last week, they're simply doing what they can. They're just giving themselves in wholehearted service to Jesus Christ. Woman, so often looked down upon. 2,000 years ago, no one would have given them any place or consideration. Jesus Christ rests the very survival of his ministry upon the sustenance that came from these women. And you look through the Word of God, you, can, you see how they're elevated. It was not a woman who betrayed the Lord. It was not the woman who forsook Him and fled. It wasn't a woman who denied Him three times with cursing. Contrary to that, it was a woman who stood at the cross, a woman who refers to the garden when He rose from the dead. Woman, woman in the life of our Lord were, were so devoted and stable that as he looks at the state of the apostles and their up and down behavior and has to upbraid them for the unbelief, there are these women who are foundational, who are supporting the work in the simplicity of their efforts that, that continually at little pockets and junctures prove to be the examples that the apostles ought to have been. It's wonderful. Two of the women mentioned, very little is known about them. Joanna, she's the wife of a man who was the steward of Herod. So if you imagine what Joseph was to Potiphar, her husband was to Herod. He had everything discharged to him. Everything was his responsibility. He was his right-hand man. He was a very important person. And you wonder then how she was first influenced. This you have this man who's very powerful and he has a wife who has some infirmity or demon possession. I don't know what. But she's involved in that. She had some evil spirits or infirmities. I don't know whether it was the same as Mary or some physical infirmity. But, but Herod Steward had a wife who was afflicted in some way. And I wonder just about the conversation, how Herod would, would give to him, for example, his, his, his exalted doctors. Here, Kuzi, you can, you can take this doctor to try and help your wife, but nothing, nothing, nothing works. <laughs> nothing works. But one day, and I don't know how, maybe the first time this woman ever heard of Jesus was from the lips of John the Baptist during his imprisonment. I, I have no idea. But one day, one day, Herod, I envision, asks his steward, how's your wife? 
And he has to reply, she's all better. Oh, was it one of my doctors? No. No, it was Jesus. And this woman, with all of her connections and her wealth and ability, she throws herself entirely to serve the Lord. I don't know if you noticed, but she was mentioned in Luke 24. She's there in the garden at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She is there. Susanna know nothing about her, except what we have here. She is one of these women that were delivered, saved, and ministered unto Christ of her substance, probably a woman of means. And so these women, these collective women, the three of them that are mentioned, they minister unto Christ, they have a means, substance, wealth. They don't sell all and follow him. They take all they have and they basically lay it at his disposal. How do you want us to serve? What way do you need help? And they did what they could. And uppermost among them was Mary Magdalene, a woman that you could study for yourself. We are told simply here, out of whom went seven devils. This was a woman who was under the complete dominion and power of Satan. Seven devils, why seven? It indicates that complete uh, captivity to the evil one. And yet she was saved, just like Joanna, just like Susanna, she was saved. And her response, her response was so simple. I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. I know. (laughs) I just want to follow the Lord Jesus and serve him and help him whatever way I can. Whatever means I have, whatever inheritance I've received, whatever wealth I've accrued, I'm going to lay it at his feet. Here it is, Lord. I'll feed the apostles. I'll feed you. I'll sustain you. I'll just follow you. And so as we read... At the beginning, she's the one, she's buying the expensive spices and all of that because she feels this, he's worthy of all of this. And wherever you see, you, you see her, she's central. She's, she's following the Lord here through all these villages, these cities. She's, she's just there, right there, always following, in the shadows, ready to serve, ready to help. All the way to the cross, she's there. At the resurrection, she's there. Mary is all on the altar. The natural response of deliverance from Satan's kingdom is, Here I am, Lord. Do with me what you will. I can't be called to ministry. I'll never be a herald of the word. But you have me. You have all of me. And so the Lord has special privileges for her. She's the one who who meets with the Lord in the garden, who hears his voice and thinks it's the gardener. And And then she hears and realizes, No, no, it's him. He meets with her personally. Her dedication does not go unrewarded. The question is, the question is, do we respond like this? Every last one of us were like Mary, Joanna, Susanna. We were like them. We were in the clutches of the devil. We had no power to set ourselves free. Jesus Christ came. All of these women, I don't know how many there were, but all of them were delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of them, all of them, they give their lives to Christ. And again, you read Luke's mentioning that it's not just the women that are named in, in the, at the resurrection. There, there, many others were there. I don't know if they were all the same. They all followed the whole way through. But you have this army of women supporting the work of God. 
I'll tell you, most of God's work would be for nothing if it wasn't for the woman. So often the woman at the prayer meeting, it's the woman who are there to help with the practical matters, cleaning up and serving food and doing all of this. And it would humble us greatly if we didn't have their presence and realize how little is getting done without them. So my time is gone. I need to, I need to simply leave with, with one challenge. And it is to you who may not be saved. What are you doing with your life? What do you intend to do with your life? What are your ambitions and what are your goals? You think you're living life for yourself. These individuals did as well. But they were under the dominion of Satan. And whether you know it or not, you're under the dominion of Satan as well. Jesus Christ came to deliver us from the power of darkness, to translate us into the kingdom of his Son. Or as 1 John 3, 8 puts it, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. This is why Jesus came. This is why he's here, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And there is not one of us here, not one of us, that have not been in some way under Satan's sway and power and influence. Not one. We may not be demon-possessed. Praise God if that's the case. We may not be fully under his sway to do the worst possible things he might desire us to do. But we are all, in an unredeemed fashion, if we are not saved and brought to Christ, we are under a satanic delusion, thinking that we're living lives for ourselves, for our good, and that all is well before God, and it's not true. And if you're not saved tonight, you need to wake up exactly as these women woke up one day and realize that Jesus Christ is the answer. He's not just the answer. He is everything. He is Alpha and Omega. He's not just delivered me to live for myself. He's delivered me to live for Him. And just put my life on the altar. So, so let me add that challenge. Christian, I'm not asking you to do something extraordinary and get a name for yourself. I'm simply asking you tonight, in what way are you serving Jesus Christ and his church, supporting his work and the furtherance of his gospel? What are you doing? Are you ministering of your substance? It may be material, it may be physical, your energies, your ability to do things, but whatever the case, are you ministering? Are you ministering? Are you enjoying this? This is the thing. This was not a chore to these women. This was the greatest time of their lives. They, they, they couldn't think of a happier day in their lives. Oh, they had been saved and their sins were washed away. And Jesus Christ had taken them to be the, his own. And they were responding simply. This is how I want to spend the rest of my life. I want to serve. I want to help those who publish the gospel. May the Lord help us. Lord, give us grace to have the spirit of these women. May he raise up more women in our church who have the same frame of mind and desire. Let us pray. As our heads are bowed, let me say to you, that we may not perfectly communicate the glories of what it is to serve Jesus Christ. But let me say this. If I had ten lives, I would live them, every one, the same way I'm living. I wouldn't change a thing. 
from the moment that I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I have many regrets in relation to myself, but I have no regret in putting my life before Christ and simply asking him on a regular basis, Lord, help me to do what you would have me to do. Some of you are going through trials. You could hardly think straight because of what you're faced with. Maybe part of the struggle, part of the battle is that you're so focused on the problem, you forgot how to joyfully serve. And maybe the answer to your struggles at present is to find something again to do. Something you say, this, this is me ministering unto Christ of my substance. This is me joyfully doing what I am able to do. To recapture what it is to be saved, like we thought last week. Just to sob, to weep, because Jesus has saved us and made us his own. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, but you'd like to be saved, let me encourage you to speak to me. I'll open the word of God with you, talk to you about some of the things that may be on your heart. And if you want to know your sins forgiven, be assured the promise is there for you to grasp. Lord, we pray you'll bless your word. Help us. Help us all. We, we Just to do what we can, to, to be filled with a sense of the joy of our sins forgiven, so much so we just begin to follow and obey and serve. Lord, I, help, I pray that you will help all of us here in this church to not just serve. We're thankful for so many who are so diligent. I'm glad, Lord, I don't need to hammer a people for their negligence of things. I'm so thankful that many, many here are involved in doing what they can. And I pray that you will continue to give us that buoyancy that enables us to continue in the same vein and even to grow, to develop, to advance, to see our calling and to execute it by the grace of God to the best of our ability. Raise up more preachers. Challenge more young men. Give them no rest, Lord. Get a hold of them. I pray that they would learn what it is to get in the closet and wrestle with the will of God, to wrestle with what the Lord would have them to do. Lord, I pray that even tonight some young man would be feeling that sense that God is speaking directly to him and that they will not rest, they'll not forget, they'll not cast it off, but they'll get alone with God until they get resolved in their mind what the Lord would have for them. So Lord, work in hearts, work in all of our hearts, and bless our meager efforts. And may we, like these women, and like the apostles, continue to do the work that we see exemplified by our Lord Jesus. Bless those who go straight home, those who go downstairs for fellowship. May your presence be with each. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.